house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. been up to in your little zoo. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that's a bit of a rattle. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here, as always, with the person who taught my son to say Hitler is kaput, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Not you and your little zoo, Joe Reed. <laughs> we need to have the Daniel Brühl conversation. And the Daniel Brühl conversation, and we'll get into it probably later in this episode, but the, the basic gist of the Daniel Brühl conversation is, what must it be like to have your whole vibe be, we should cast him as a Nazi? Like, Okay, so the last time we talked about Daniel Brühl was Woman in Gold, and I mm. think we expressed our incredulousness that Daniel Brühl does not play a Nazi right. in Woman in Gold. Very much the and opposite. And this movie yeah. is like, we're, we're, we're going through a journey, like a tonal fade, because the movie starts out and it's like, oh, maybe he's not a Nazi. Nope, he's a Nazi. Right. He's a Nazi. This, uh, this movie coming, and it comes about four years after Rush, but so in Rush he plays, it's a very, very modern context, it has nothing to do with World War II or the Holocaust at all. He plays a race car driver stepping so far out of his, uh, you know, assumed element, and he gets so close to getting an Oscar nomination in Best Supporting Actor, and then it doesn't happen, and then... I know that this was not the narrative, but in my mind, it's like, well, now he's going to fall back on Nazi roles. Now it's just like back to the warm <laughs> embrace of of the tried and true. And I mean, he's best known probably for most people still probably best known for his role in Inglorious Bastards, where he plays literally like the epitome of the Nazi, right? Where he's held up as the Nazi ideal. That's his whole role in that film so he's not like head nazi in the movie like he he's he's the like the, the poster boy he gross is, finger quotes war hero for the nazis right he's the nazi that they want to like hold up and be like wouldn't you all want right. to be like this nazi like that's daniel brule and inglorious but he's not like boss nazi no he's not boss nazi although boss nazi would be an amazing video game character i'm not quite sure in what uh, kind of context, maybe even something. This is why I don't play video games. No, but I'm thinking like not in like a in what your normal like I've got a gun and I'm running through a fortress killing Nazis, but in like a oh, Mike right, t- and you've got to kill the the boss. But like in like a Mike Tyson's Punch Out kind of thing. Remember? Did I'm gonna assume you didn't play Mike Tyson's Punch Out as a kid when you were growing up? But no, I did Mortal Kombat though. Okay, Mortal Kombat is that like a fighting game. Yes. So the thing with Mike Tyson's Punch-Out was, it was essentially you were this little teeny tiny little boxer 
who like, you know, the classic, you know, not really like a wimpy guy, but he was like, he was, he was a little guy. He was a little guy. And so in every round you would like level up and play and, and have to fight these like successively harder fighters. And Almost every one of them was some kind of like ethnic stereotype or whatever. It would be like the Italian guy was like Don Flamenco, and um, uh, this sounds a lot like Shaq Fu. Do you remember Shaq Fu? I remember of Shaq Fu, um, but I didn't play Shaq Fu. But like, so what I say? I said, the Spanish guy was Don Flamenco, and the 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 Japanese guy was Piston Honda, and um, the there was a German guy who was this very sort of like Kaiser von whatever, and um, sure, every single one of them was like the most like, and so I feel like Boss Nazi would be like the the ultimate level of that. Where like just before you fight Mike Tyson, you fight boss nazi and you got to get past boss nazi so um but poor daniel Bruhl, like we just associate him with playing nazis nikki lauda could have changed that maybe the oscar nomination should have happened i know well i mean for as much as i was sort of like you know mezzo mezzo on uh, on uh on rush that's what that's sort of yeah like I liked his performance in it. And I actually liked Chris Hemsworth Hemsworth's performance in it as well. But the movie itself, I was like, eh, okay. But like, I was kind of riding for that Brule nomination. That would have been cute. Especially because the alternative was among, I mean, yeah. Like the, the sort of insurgent there was Jonah Hill in The Wolf of Wall Street, which was a nomination that I did not care for. And then even like... Bradley Cooper in American Hustle. My whole thing about American Hustle is you can like one performance in it, and mine was uh, uh, just like you can like one Scientologist, right? Essentially, yes, yes. Um, You can like one performance in American American Hustle. American Hustle is Scientology, which isn't to say that like I mean whatever. My complicated feelings on Jennifer Lawrence and in American Hustle are a longer discussion than we can probably uh, afford to have in this podcast, Um, especially when we're going off of Daniel Brühl. But my point is. Yes, it would have been a nice Oscar nomination for him, and it might have then um, meant a, a more variety of roles than than going back and playing a Nazi in this. He's a he's a dastardly sort in this. He's a mustache twirler. This guy mm-hmm. to maybe not the detriment of the movie, but like maybe a better movie. I'm not saying that like the Nazi villain has to be like nuanced or whatever, but there is something very. Um, broad about that character i mean it's a broad movie i think some of it probably goes to the particulars of this story which is partly based in fact sure that you know the particulars of this story kind of limit the actual interaction with uh, the nazis in that yeah. like it kind of falls all to this one guy mm. to represent the entire right. brutality and violence and scheming of the nazis and again it's just funny that once again Dan- that this falls upon the shoulders of daniel Bruhl. like i was trying to think of yeah. earlier like what other actors are so like even like we've talked about Christoph Waltz a bunch on this podcast and, and not too long ago when we did our Water for Elephants and talking about how just like he really got pigeonholed playing these kind of um bad husband types or uh, mm-hmm. and obviously um the the Nazi he played in Inglorious Bastards was the thing that broke him through in the United States but even Christoph Waltz hasn't been so 
tied to his like Nazi role, right? I was thinking of somebody right. like like Rafe Fines kind of becomes known to American audiences via Schindler's List. He's nominated for the Oscar. He is uh he does so well playing such an evil, terrible character in Schindler's List that he becomes almost improbably like from that becomes a movie star in some ways um he's never been like an a-list blockbuster star but he's like a leading man in hollywood consistently and remains to be and it's funny that like even ray fines who his career has gone from being defined by nazi and schindler's list to then voldemort who is like magic's (laughs) version of hitler to you know what i mean and like even that even and i was trying to think of like even that he was able to sort of He's been able to play a lot of different types of roles besides just that. He's been able to play sort of romantic leads in The English Patient. Well, I guess The English Patient, he's also sort of Nazi sympathizer, right? Isn't that the whole thing about his character? And Anyway, anyway. My point being, (laughs) um, let Daniel Bruhl spread his wings is sort of what I'm saying. I mean, Daniel Bruhl, at least, I mean, I guess we should also qualify this with to American audiences. Daniel yes. Brule is yes. also in the MCU. Don't ask me how he's in the MCU. Couldn't tell you. But mostly I mean, playing to... a very sort of like dastardly villain with a, you know... Yes, anyway. Nazi-codedness? Well, I mean, here's my chicken or the egg thing. Is his character in the MCU <laughs> Nazi-coded, or it, do we read that into it because he's being played by Daniel Brule? Like, there's a real, you know... A cause and effect kind of a thing. I don't know I, enough okay. about that character. His character's name is Helmut Zemo, and the problem with him in he's in Captain America Civil War, and there's so much else going on in Captain America Civil War that even though he is like the prime mover of like what causes the conflict, he's so easily forgotten because it's like all it's not all, about the villain. Right. It's all about like the the Avengers fighting each other. So but anyway. Um yeah. Daniel Brühl specifically, though, it's more like if Christoph Waltz was like the bad husband to only female painters or like female <laughs> creatives. Right. Because Daniel Brühl is only a Nazi adjacent to various cultural institutions. He's adjacent to the cinema and, right. and Glorious Bastards. Right. And right. in here, Zeus. Next, he will play a Nazi um, at the opera. To, uh, I don't know literature, <laughs> right? A Nazi at the uh, at the um, uh, uh, observatory or something like that, mm-hmm. right? He's uh, yes, 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 exactly. Yeah. All right. So this is Nazi our meteorologist. <laughs> this is our way. We've said of... the word Nazi far too many times. We really time, have. So let's move from Daniel Pearl. It's, We're talking it, about the zookeeper. Chris, it's way. not like Beetlejuice. It's not like if we say it a certain number of times, like. Someone will appear in our living room. It's not like saying bomb on a plane. <laughs> or that. Yeah, exactly. It's not like Candyman or whatever. Like, we'll be fine. Um, uh, anyway, welcome to our episode on The Zookeeper's Wife. <sighs> not a bad movie. Not, not a, a great, great movie. movie. But not... You're right. It's It could be worse, could be better. And I think that's probably the thing that ultimately damns it, is um, it didn't stand out in any way, and it needed to given when in the calendar it was opening and 
I want to have a conversation at some point in this episode about the Oscars and movies about the Holocaust and whether Mm -hmm. there is a sense that, and this risks being sort of like accidentally indelicate, and I certainly don't want to do that, but like whether there's a sense of, do you now have to be like doing something incredibly remarkable making a movie about the Holocaust because there have been so many movies about the Holocaust that have been Oscar recognized. I think it's maybe that we as people who, you know, pay attention or predict or prognosticators need to maybe kind of let this go as a theme, but it's hard to do that when Oscar kind of doesn't either because you can definitely see, especially given the like literary success of the book that the movie eventually was adapted from. But, like, you can see a version where this movie is, like, bumped up to a December release if the movie's better, you know, or they thought they could get something from it, but, you know. So, The Zookeeper's Wife, 2017, and, like, very much a lost-in-the-shuffle kind of a movie, where I feel like this was a movie that we sort of saw coming down the pike forever, and because Jessica Chastain at that point was a two-time Oscar nominee, we were looking forward to it because it had some pedigree. It was based on a novel. It was, you know, had this sort of important subject matter. It was based on a true story. All of these elements that tend to work for the Oscars. And despite the fact that by this point, Nikki Caro's career had sort of like you know, gone ups and downs and whatever. But you can't deny that she had two Best Actress nominees in the span of three years at one point. You know what I mean? Between Keisha Mm -hmm. Castle-Hughes for uh, Whale Rider and then Charlize Theron for North Country. And so it's tough to sort of file that away and, and not have it in the back of your mind, just like, well, you know, she could pull it off again. And so there was some spotlight on the zookeeper's wife as it was arriving and i think by the time it released at the end of march in 2017 we kind of realized that like well this is not where you launch a pedigreed movie like this if they have too many plans on it for it to be a big oscar movie so it just kind of released very quietly and it didn't feel like a whole lot of people saw it and it didn't feel like a whole lot of people talked about it. And by the end of that year, Jessica Chastain had been in Molly's game. So if you were talking about Jessica Chastain in the vein of awards, you were talking about her related to another movie. Mm-hmm. So what to do? What to do then, Chris? <laughs> with the We're talking story? about very early Oscar buzz when we talk about this movie. Yes, exactly. Exactly right. So there's some interesting things to talk about. Certainly, I think we would like to get into the Jessica Chastain thing. We haven't really talked about her too terribly much on this podcast. We've, this is our Famously, third... we've done two episodes with a friend and former guest, Kevin O'Keefe. That's true. We should apologize to Kevin that we're moving on with the Jessica Chastain movie without him um, for the first time. Yeah, we've done uh, Miss Sloan, the um, classic in the uh, Nutella canon, and uh, Most Violent Year. And now classic in the nail canon, right? Fingernail, classic fingernail cinema, uh, the the most violent year. And so now we are on to the zookeeper's wife. And I think talking about Jessica Chastain now, she's just won the Oscar for best actress. I definitely want to get into that. And 
hers is a really fascinating career arc. It's not the kind of career arc you see very much. It's not a classic, um, you know, pattern, really. She goes from, like, zero to being in 20 movies, and then she gets two Oscar nominations back-to-back, and then... It's weird that she didn't get nominated at all between Zero Dark Thirty and Eyes of Tammy Faye because it feels like she's been sort of like perpetually on long list. Sixth place. Right, right. Exactly. Like sixth through tenth place or whatever. And is constantly there's we have a wealth of options for uh this head Oscar Buzz movies for Jessica Chastain. And And we might be getting a wealth more now that she's a winner and we know what happens after. I definitely... Like, you look at Nicole Kidman after Nicole Kidman won, you know, that's like kind of our bread and butter. Yep, yep. Uh, I mean, all hopes for Jessica Chastain's output in the future, but, you know. But we'll get into all of that on the other side of the plot description. I feel like we should uh, move right along. And Chris, you are going to be the one doing the plot description for this and I feel like it has been a solid two months since I've done one of these. It's probably true. Again, yeah, it's only our second episode we're recording after the Oscars because we backlogged so much, and yeah. you know we're getting ready to do our main mini series, and we'll. It's be been kind fun. Of doing that in a burst. It's been fun to read our mentions and how everybody's sort of enjoying our little um, pre-taped. Uh, episodes that we recorded before the Oscars where we were, you know, pretending to react to the Oscars and oh my god, I can't believe that happened and uh and it turns out that I can't believe that happened um was the appropriate reaction <laughs> to the the Oscars this year. So, yes, listeners. And I can't believe that happened is about as much as I want to say about uh-huh. it. We so. do not have to discuss it. Uh we can move right along. Um although I can't believe that happened kind of does apply to Jessica Chastain winning for the Eyes of Tammy Faye depending on when in the season you would be uh I definitely want to talk about that because you and I haven't even had this conversation. No, we haven't. That's the thing. The I can't believe it that happened kind of, I, I mean, in a way that I've never even seen, even more so than like the best picture snafu from a few years ago, like yeah. overrode everything. And that like this year's Oscars is going to be interesting to unpack in the future, mostly because I think the I can't believe that happened overshadowed what a horrendous ceremony it was. Um but also but you have all of these actual, winners like, wins. That, yeah. I th- and that's I think I tweeted that like moments after it happened on this on the Oscars was like good luck to anybody who won an Oscar tonight and who will win an Oscar tonight for being remembered because it's just it's absolutely going to get swallowed up by history by this like unprecedented moment. Um all right, but so we'll get into it. We'll get into all of it. We'll get into Nikki Caro. Um uh, it'll be it'll be a time. All right, so Chris, we are talking. We're about... We're here to discuss a movie. We're here to discuss that asks the, the question: What if there was a zookeeper's wife? It does explore that on several levels. Um, I have so many zoo questions that I'm not sure we're going to be able to definitively answer. And one of Listen, those questions: We're a zoo podcast now. We're doing. We had a zoo at some point. No, Everything yes, to do yes, zoos. we will do that. Yes, yes, we have not done that one yet. We bought a zoo. We will. We should. I don't know why we haven't done it yet. We should do it. All right. 
Um, yes, we are talking about The Zookeeper's Wife, 2017 film directed by Nikki Caro. It was written by Angela Workman, based on the novel by Diane Ackerman, starring Jessica Chastain, Johan Heldenberg, Daniel Bruhl, a cast of many others, premiered on March 31st, 2017, not exactly prime Oscar material, and so... Here we are. Chris, I am going about to start my stopwatch if you are ready for a 60-second plot description of The Zookeeper's Wife. Be gentle on me. It's my first one in a long time. All right. Listeners. All right. Limber up uh, if you would like to stretch, if you would like to, uh, uh, I don't know, take rubber a baby buggy bumpers, protein shake or something like that before you start. All right. I have the tigers playing in the background. All right. Your time starts now. Antonina Zabinski and her husband Jan run the Warsaw Zoo at the rise of the Third Reich. The Nazis invade Poland and force the Polish Jews into the ghetto, also in turn killing most of the animals in the zoo and installing Let's Heck, Hitler's head zoologist, as the overseer. The Zabinskis quickly devise a plan to sneak Polish Jews out of the ghetto and hide them on the grounds by convincing Heck to run the zoo as a pig farm, basically. Heck agrees, but also becomes really lecherous towards Antonina. Jan is forced to work in the ghetto and uses his job to sneak people out before placing them in safe houses. Meanwhile, Antonina develops a caring relationship with Ursula, a young woman who is one of the first people that they are hidden by the Zabinskis. In the ensuing years of the Holocaust, Heck continues to make advances on Antonina while the Zabinskis orchestrate outgoing rescues. Jan joins the Warsaw Uprising and is believed to be killed. When Antonina later attempts to persuade Heck into revealing Jan's whereabouts as the Nazis uh, begin their retreat from Warsaw, he finally discovers the whole scheme, and and there's a quasi-standoff in the zoo where we think Heck kills her son, but actually he doesn't. And then, then everyone flees Poland when the Nazis are defeated and Warsaw begins to be rebuilt. Antonina returns to the zoo with the children, and yay, Jan also returns alive and the family's reunited, having saved over 300 Jews in the process. I let you go long. Yes. Uh, good. And that's time. Yes. Very, very plotty for a movie that it's is very kind plotty. of on the same level the whole movie. Yeah. I mean, it's not like we've like seen this story a billion times. As you said, it is a movie about what if there was a zookeeper's wife. So it is a little bit, um, you know, uh, movies about zookeeper's wives are not uh, chock-a-block on our, on our film schedule. And yet... There are, you know, beats and arcs, and there is a visual language that comes with movies like these. This sort of the creaking floorboard that spells danger for the people you are hiding, you know, down below. The suspicious look from the Nazi where, you know, the pit of your stomach sort of drops to the floor. The uh, fracturing marriage kind of a thing because of these sort of lecherous advances that the Nazi guy is, is making on, on Jessica Chastain's character Antonina. And so it's tough to surprise an audience with a movie like this. And I'm not really saying mm-hmm. that that's the goal of this movie, but there is a sense of, we know all too well, kind of, where this story goes. We know this history all too Mm -hmm. well. And so I think ultimately the filmmakers and Chastain are sort of working against that tide a little bit. Right. Well, and that being said, because I certainly don't want to be glib about history, but I also don't want to like discredit the movie in a certain way because 
we are very familiar with this type of movie and like we've seen a lot of like really really bad ones and like almost offensive to history versions of movies like this but like i I can't believe you used up all your english when you were saying that sentence chris i don't uh (laughs) trying not to invoke jacob the liar um (laughs) but you know you know it it is a familiar brand of movie and that being said i think it's better than a lot of the movies that it will remind you of and i think it's largely because jessica chastain's good in the movie yeah i think she's very good in the movie it's interesting i was watching some uh interviews with chastain and with nikki caro from when that movie released and of course one of the your sort of boilerplate questions when you uh, have a q a like that is what kind of brought you to the movie what you know made you want to make this movie and in both of their cases a lot of times you'll talk about and especially this is you know a movie based on a book and you'll talk about how oh i some a friend of mine told me you have to read this book and i read this book and i said i have to make this movie or you know this person's story i came across it and it was so you know enraptured by it and whatever and in both of their cases in both chastain and nikki caro's cases they both were like i made this movie because someone sent me a script you know what i mean it was just like there was Mm -hmm. not this great narrative of them coming to the movie it feels like very much kind of business as usual kind of thing which is not to like slight movies that people make by you know getting sent scripts that's sort of that's how hollywood works that's how hollywood is run mm-hmm. but it feels like a lot of times with these oscar movies if there isn't a true sort of passion narrative it th- at least one kind of maybe gets ginned up a little bit and the mm-hmm. fact that there wasn't even that for this Watching it now, with the benefit of hindsight, of course, but watching it now, I'm just like, oh, yeah, like, that was not, like, they weren't even going to go to the trouble of, like, making up a fake story about how, you know, their, you know, child's kindergarten teacher handed them a book and were like, you have to read this book. And so, um, (laughs) it's basically... I'm sure it's also one of those things of, as soon as one or the other was attached, you know, Nikki Caro and Jessica Chastain wanted to work together... Yeah, sure. I mean, certainly. And I mean, can we do the Nikki Caro discussion now? We're sort of at the top yeah, of it. Yeah, totally. She's a really... Her ascent is very, very interesting. Yeah. You know, um, so yeah, go into it. I mean, so she's a New Zealand filmmaker. She, uh, in her early career, was sort of a sculpture worker. That was sort of a lot of her early... Um, sort of passions. And then she makes a movie called Memory and Desire in 1998 in New Zealand. Um, I'm not really familiar with any of the stars of it. It was shot by Dion Beebe. Um, but this like very, very small uh, distributor and it gets, it, it plays at Cannes in 1998. Um She's uh, nominated for the camera door, does not win, and wins. I think it ends up playing on television in uh, in New Zealand. Or no, I'm sorry, it was nominated for New Zealand Film and Television Awards. So they sort of wrap themselves together. But anyway, um, that's her debut. But it's not till five years later, four or five years later, that Whale Rider comes along, and Whale Rider is like the big breakthrough. I believe that one premiered at Sundance? Correct me if I'm wrong. 
Well, I mean, because Whale Rider is listed as an O2 movie, but it was O3 release in uh, the States. I want to say that it actually premiered at um, TIFF. And then played Sundance in the States after that. Possibly. Because I definitely know it was. Win a TIFF prize? Yes, it won Audience Award. That was the thing. It won Audience Award at TIFF. Yes, that's how it went. It went to TIFF first, September of 2002. It wins the Audience Award there. Then it goes to Sundance and it wins the Audience Award there for World Cinema. And then it plays like the Tribeca Film Festival and it plays Rotterdam. And then it ultimately opens in the United States in june of 2003 so it's got already this like really not even just there's there's festival pedigree which definitely exists but there's also like populist festival pedigree and this that's mm-hmm. what Rider had where it not only played well at these festivals but the audiences there loved it so much that they were giving it prizes and that's the kind that's when you know these movies really you know studios sort of uh pin their hopes on it it was I'm trying to look up the um, the distributor for Whale Rider. Give me a second. Uh, it was New Market, right? The that's what. All right, studio I was, that yes. basically went under after they did uh, Passion of the Christ. That's. I knew it was something. I I was gonna say it was either Think Film or, or New Market. It was New Market. You're absolutely right. And, and they so, also had Donnie Darko, I believe. Yeah, New Market was an interesting little. Uh, an interesting little outfit outfit there for a, a while. A little moment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Was New uh, you're right. Also yeah. Memento. Who I was going to say I'm on their uh on their IMDb and so this is sometimes a little bit sometimes misleading because they can be co-productions and whatnot. But um right. movies like Agora, the uh, Alejandro Amenabar movie with Rachel Weisz, Monster, uh Memento, The Way Back, the Peter Weir movie, The Way Back. Um, the Woodsman, the Kevin Bacon movie, The Woodsman, The Nines, that uh, John August movie, The Nines. Did you ever see that one with Ryan Reynolds and Melissa McCarthy? I did not. Interesting little movie. Anyway, yeah. So New Market was this like very indie, like it wasn't even like, um, almost like pre-approved indie, like Oscar pre-approved indie, where they're like Fox Searchlight, Focus Features, Weinstein mm-hmm. Company. Like, you guys are our, you know, Miramax. You guys are our, our indies that we look for. New Market really had to kind of fight for this, and it was a really strong campaign. Obviously, the big quirk about that movie's Oscar success was that Keisha Castle-Hughes was heavily campaigned in supporting actress despite the fact that she is so much the lead that she's kind of like the I'm, there are other actors in this movie obviously cliff curtis among them um but like this is keisha castle hughes's movie this is a movie about her if you want to say maybe the whale is the main character and that's why you want to fudge it and say that keisha <laughs> is supporting that's the only possible argument you could possibly make um and so once Oscar nomination morning comes around, Oscar voters actually sort of, you know, did it their own way and they nominated her in lead actress. So that was the big surprise. Not that she got nominated necessarily, because a lot of people thought she might get nominated in supporting, but that she got nominated in lead was one of the big surprises of a fairly surprising Oscar nomination morning. I think we've talked about this before. The sort of yes. the uh, Fernando Morelli's Cinema City of God um 
in America had some surprising uh, Oscar nominations that morning, and then Keisha Castle Hughes. Sure, we had a lot to say during our 2003 May miniseries. That's right. Yes. Um, after Whale, so Whale Rider comes out in the states in 03. Nikki Caro then signs on to direct North Country, which is based on this book. The movie was forever going to be called Class Action. Um, uh, starring Charlize Theron, Francis McDormand, is about uh, abusive working conditions in a mine in Minnesota. Um, uh, is it an iron mine? I was going to say it's not a coal mine, it's an iron mine. Anyway, um, gets nominations for both Charlize Theron and Francis McDormand. It is always my go-to example for the sort of idea of a Halo nomination, where an actor or actress wins the Oscar and then within one to three years gets a follow-up nomination, despite the fact that maybe, you know, the buzz isn't fully there. It's a little bit puzzling why this movie sort of, it's not like North Country was taking, you know, American cinemas by storm in 2005. And yet it was considered a little bit of a box office disappointment. And if I remember correctly, came out early enough in the season like uh october maybe october yeah. yeah um it had played tiff in in 05 and then uh, opened a month later um but yeah it was it was seen as a little bit of a maybe a soft disappointment people liked it it's not like everybody hated it or anything like that there was some you know support for it i actually thought it was a pretty good movie probably not something i would have nominated but there, it was one of those things where it's like, we took a chance on Charlize Theron, we gave her the Oscar, and look at her, she's coming back and she's good again in a movie. And so she gets another nomination. Um, and from there, so here's where the Nikki Caro career really kind of hits a snag, where she's signed on to make a movie that forever and a day was called The Vintner's Luck, which... <laughs> that was the book's title that they were based on. So, like, you're kind of, you know, at some level boxed into that. But also, if your movie's called The Vintner's Luck, it doesn't surprise me that, you know, um, it's maybe not going to catch fire. But the other thing about it was this movie, and it starred Vera Farmiga and Keisha Kessel Hughes again, and Gaspard Ullier. Uh, How do we pronounce uh, the late Gaspard's last name? I believe that's correct. Uh, and then Jeremy Renier. And so it's about a uh, a vintner, a, a winemaker. And it end up it ends up being called a heavenly vintage. And it gets released, I I suppose. I will take it on an article of faith that it ever did get released. <laughs> it feels like the classic movie for me that was on a like this will come out this year and it was that way for like four different years it was just like yes sometime this year you know vera farmiga and keisha kessel hughes in uh, in the wait for the vintner's luck and so it ultimately gets released technically i said uh in 2009 and nobody sees it and so nikki caro does not direct another feature film after that for another six years after that until mcfarland usa which is the movie where kevin costner coaches a is it a cross country team? I want to say it's, it- it's it's another boys running movie, right? Um, right. Which I remember at the time, because I forget if that movie made money or not. But 
people being online like Disney's releasing this movie by Nikki Caro and nobody knows that it's a Nikki Caro movie. Right. That was the thing. Do you remember that? Yes. Because by the by that time, this director who had been kind of this indie sensation and this up and coming, you know, watch out for Nikki Caro. Because the fact that it had been 10 full years since she had released a movie that anybody saw between North Country and McFarland, USA, it's 10 years. And so by this point now, she's become kind of by default sort of a journeyman director, right? A sort of mm-hmm. uh, you, a director for hire sounds pejorative. And yet, like, it's odd that, like, she's sort of, she's not making... She- a cl- like uh, prestige movies. It's the beginning of kind of her studio director yeah. ascent, which like right because this was like a Disney movie being given bigger and bigger movies. Yeah, like this is yeah uh, not to jump ahead, but like this is the movie that gets her in house with Disney. Right, right. Um, so Zookeeper's Wife follows up McFarland USA by a couple of years and. Zookeeper's Wife, again, has another fairly anonymous... McFarland USA made okay money, by the way, you had asked. Uh, it made $45 million. I want to see how much of that was. Yeah, so $44 million, $44.5 million in North America. So, like, for a movie, like, about, again, Kevin Costner coaching a cross-country team, that's not bad. Like, that's actually... I would say that's pretty good for... If you had if you had told me if you had asked me before this episode how much money do you think McFarland USA made in 2015 I would have been like 12 million dollars. So <laughs> to me that's like that's better than I would have thought. So but then right. Zookeeper's Wife again another very anonymous release and she doesn't direct another movie for another 3 years after that and that ends up being the live action Mulan which is uh cursed in timing if nothing else i actually think that's an okay right. movie i don't think it's a great movie i would i wanted it to be great. yeah it, ha- it has some problems but like it's it's handsomely made very, like some of the very. craft behind the scenes of that movie is pretty uh beautiful it got the costume nomination did it get anything else i believe that was the only nomination that it got um but i will uh double check um, also, Gong Lee giving it to you every ball in that movie. Oh, it got visual effects a nomination as well. Ah, uh, yes, 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 yes. Um, yeah, Gong Lee fucking rules in that movie. There's a, um, a cameo at the end of that movie that made me uh, cheer out loud, which was great. <laughs> um, but ultimately, because it gets released uh, amid the, it got it was it was about to be released. It had its world premiere on March 9th, mm-hmm. 2020, at the Dolby Theater in Hollywood, at the Oscars Theater. Um, it was about to be released on the eve of COVID shutting everything down. So it was like... And Disney reportedly reportedly would have pushed the movie if it wasn't for like licensing and merchandising deals that they were stuck to, basically. It was too late to pull the movie out. Not just because it was about to be released, but because of, like, contractual reasons. Right. They had to release it online. So, they, when was the... What was the day of the online release? Because it uh, it did get pushed in general. Like, it got pulled from, obviously, as everything did in March. 
It got mm-hmm. released online in September as a premiere. Uh, th- so it got so it was you know six months release uh, delayed, and then it was you know. But the premium VOD, I believe, was before then, though. Was it? I think so. Give me a second. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but, like, it wasn't pushed that long. I don't think. Give me, like, half a second to read this, because I want to get this right. Because if it was September, that's, like, post-Tenet. Yeah, premiered the film on Disney Plus with premiere access for a premium fee on September 4th, 2020. Oh, wow. Yeah. Never mind. I guess I remember that incorrectly. No, yeah, so 2020 or sorry, uh, September 4th, 2020 was the was the premiere access release date. By that point, this was like the this was the experiment movie, right? Mulan was the movie that they mm-hmm. were going to try and see if they could make premiere VOD work for movies that were intended to be blockbuster theatrical releases that they didn't want to wait. They had all this stuff on their hands. They didn't want to hold on to it for longer than they already had. And let's see. And so I remember there was a lot of like debate over Mulan and whether this is going to work and whether it's going to adversely affect the movie. And ultimately, as we saw with, I think a lot of would be blockbusters that Disney put out on Disney plus or that, Warner Brothers put out on um, on HBO Max, which was to some degree or another, like Wonder Woman Part Two got uh, Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four rather got like talked about and whatever, as did Soul, as did whatever. But like there was this palpable sense that these are asterisk movies, that these are mm-hmm. not movies that are being uh, we're not getting the full experience that we would have with these movies. Not just the fact that like, I'm not seeing it in a theater, but it's not being a movie in a theater. There is something sort of ephemeral about that, that I've not been able to ever really define, but it's like, there could be a movie released in a theater that even if I don't see that movie, that's a theatrically released movie. That is a major release. It gets treated as such. And it exists sort of in the cultural firmament as a major release. And I think we're still having a struggle defining movies that don't open in theaters. Right? Well, it's not... It's harder to define them, too, because like now we're at the point where they're ha- that's happening less and less. And I, I mean... It's been confusing from corporation to corporation on, like, what their actual end goal is with some of their right. product. In right. term- and But, like, no, you're absolutely right that, like, they have a qualification to their footprint on the culture. Yeah. And I think Mulan even has that a little bit harder because, you know, it's a Disney live-action remake. And, like, a lot of those, even when they've made a ton of money, have floated into the ether, yeah. right? Like, yeah. Beauty and the Beast made an insane amount of money. Right, <laughs> And right. nobody talks about that movie happening. Right. And it's like Mulan is going to get that even more so. Like, it's it, it has this whole other wrinkle to it that I think things like, you know, Tenet doesn't even have. Well, the real bummer about Mulan, too. And again, caveat being that, like, the movie itself was not as good as I was hoping it was going to be. 
in my opinion, and I think in a lot of people's opinion, it was there was a there was a crestfallen kind of tone to the reaction to that movie, and I think rightly so. But anyway, Mulan was the latest in this series of live action remakes of Disney animated films, and the receptions to those had gotten sort of steadily worse, or at least like was not in a good place. Where like some people sort of like Cinderella, the Lily James Cinderella. Nobody, as you said, nobody really talks about the 2017 Beauty and the Beast kind of at all anymore, and people didn't really like it when it got released. The Lion King made, it again, a ton of money and yet seemed to land with a thud culturally. Nobody ever talks mm-hmm. about that Lion King. If you're talking about the Lion King, you're either talking about the animated film or perhaps the Broadway version. And so by the time Mulan was coming out, the reputation for these movies was not great. Certainly among like critics or among like discerning audiences or whatever. And yet that trailer for Mulan came out and all of our cynicism, it felt like at least, got blown out the doors, right? And we were just like right. watching that trailer. I at least was like, oh, I'm, I'm, I, it's such a rousing trailer. I feel so excited to see this movie. And, and Mulan was never like, by the time Mulan came out, the original Mulan, I was at the like post Disney age of like, you know, I talk about how I've never seen Hercules or whatever. And so, because I was too old for it. And, and so Mulan came out, I think right after Hercules. And so I don't have these like childlike attachments to a movie like Mulan. And yet I see that trailer and I was like, Oh my God, like I was so excited for it. And then to have that excitement that had built up literally again, movie had its premiere in Hollywood. Like it was on the eve of getting released Mm -hmm. and to have it get pulled was, um, you feel terribly for a lot of the people involved, but like Nikki Carroll especially, kind of, because like her career had been so rocky for such a long time. And well, and she'd been bandied about, like, she was a name that you would see mentioned in like prospective Disney projects for a while. Yeah. Um, and like she was never the one to get the job. Yes. Yeah. And then so. You know. Also, speaking of movies that are not getting released in theaters, uh, her next movie is a Netflix movie, and Jennifer Lopez. Jennifer, Jennifer Lopez, Lopez action Netflix movie, right? Which again, I mean, we talk about sort of like Nikki Caro becoming less of an auteur director and more of a of you know a workaday director. This movie, mm-hmm. The Mother. If you're making a movie with Jennifer Lopez, you're making a Jennifer Lopez movie. You know what I mean? Like you're not this is right. you're not making a Nikki Caro movie. And so I'm I we're recording this conversation less than 24 hours after I finally saw Marry Me. If you make a Jennifer Lewis jo, if, if you make a Jennifer Lopez movie, you are making a Jennifer Lopez movie. Yeah. The, the Marry Me is like the the def, the definitive text of Jennifer Lopez. Movie. <laughs> I still haven't seen it. I need to see it. Well, you're going to see it soon because I'm going to make you see <laughs> oh, it. Oh, I'm like I, we... it's not that I don't want to see it. I will see it. It's just it, it What's the reality TV show quote? She may Oh, it's Coco Montrese. She may not want to talk about it, but we're going to talk about oh, it. Oh, I thought you were going to do the Gia Gun um what you want to do is not what you're going to do. Um Yes. Anyway, yes. I'm going to see Marry Me. It came out during... No, but you want to see Marry Me. I that do. It came out during Oscar season, which is the only reason why I didn't see it, is because I was so goddamn busy with everything else. But anyway, so The Mother is this action thriller, and it stars Jennifer Lopez, and, I mean, 
technically also Joseph Fiennes and Gael Garcia, Garcia Bernal and Omari Hardwick. And yet it's, this is Jennifer Lopez. Like it's when, when Netflix did their um, big super trailer for all the movies that were coming out and everybody kind of barfed at it. Or the worst cultural abomination to hit uh, <coughs> movie screens of various sorts since the uh, computer animated Lion King movie. I'm the only person who like did not, freak out about that i don't know it's not like i liked it i hated it i, I know like you were not alone everybody hated my it. eyes anyway jennifer lopez was very prominently featured in that it was like her and like jason momoa in that weird fantasy movie that he's in um were like the two and then the the end shot with uh knives out part two anyway um seems like it's going to be a big priority for netflix but does not seem like it's going to be an awardsy thing um which it doesn't have to be like you know there are great movies that are not... Uh, oh, no, I'm absolutely going to watch this movie. Oh, absolutely. But I, I also... <laughs> What's your expectation of it being good? That's the thing, is I don't really have a whole lot of expectation for it being good, which is too bad, because I love Jennifer Lopez, and I want the best for Nikki Caro. Um, so, taking it back... There then, could be a corner turning with Nikki Caro, though. The thing that we're talking about, where she is essentially a studio director mm-hmm. or you know like you say work a day director she has an amazon limited series coming with riley keogh called daisy jones and the six that sounds cool but then imdb also has her currently attached i hope this actually happens to a novel I love that I've wanted to see adapted for a long time called beautiful ruins which was one of the like you know, 20 things that Todd Field was attached to at one time. Right. Um, I don't think I read Beautiful Ruins, but I feel like I was, like, that That book was recommended to me very heavily. You would fucking love this book. It yeah. is so good. It um, kind of... It's one of those things where there's, like, multiple stories across multiple generations, but it also takes place on the set of the filming of Cleopatra. Right. Right, yes. In part of it, and there is this, like, young actress who, uh, (laughs) looping it back to Zookeeper's Wife, the actress I had in my mind when I read the book was Jessica Chastain. Very good. Um, uh, Who knows who they would cast in this role, though, but it's, like, a really interesting part. But also Richard Burton comes into the action at some point. Oh, as, like, as a character in the book. Oh, Oh, as a full character in the book. Ooh, that's intriguing. I mean, if this would become an Oscar thing, yeah. like, and of course, this could be a full, like, years in advance, egg on my face type of thing. Right. Whoever is playing Richard Burton is getting nominated for an Oscar. Who would you cast as Richard Burton? Who would you, where, where, uh, Tom Burke? Uh, that's the first thing that leapt to my mind. Okay. All right. But like he's already played Orson. Right, Wells. that's the problem. That's the that's the problem right there in a nutshell is you don't want to have somebody who is, you know, playing the greats essentially. The way that Richard Burton without, you know, spoiling it because like just like I said about Marry Me, I will now make you read this book. Yeah. Um yeah, the oh. way that Richard Burton is used is like dryly funny but also like a bastard. So yeah. You have you'd have to have somebody who could be that, and again Tom Burke. But again, you're right. You're right about the Orson <laughs> Welles thing. Um, I love that you love Tom Burke and haven't seen the souvenir yet. He is un. 
real in the souvenir. I'm okay. You're going to have an easier time making me watch the souvenir movies than you are to get me to read a book of any kind. I just <laughs> don't have the time. Um, it's not a difficult book. I sound anti-book. I love books. If I had unlimited leisure time, I would read so many books. I, it's not that I don't like reading books. I don't have the time. It is know, a problem. Anyway. Um, all right. So backing out of the Nikki Caro thing to the zookeeper's wife. As a film, as a sort of like, you know, a tourist project. How do we feel like the zookeeper's wife comes off because i know that like the both of us sort of default to like jessica chastain's great in this movie but like is this a great movie i mean as a movie that probably i mean it's on netflix now so like people can watch it right but as a movie that will probably find its widest audience in like middle school classrooms right right i think it's perfectly fine yeah I think that's probably And right. I don't mean that as a dig, but like No. You could put way worse movies like it or like dealing with similar subject matter in front of middle schools and it's terrible movies. Yeah. No. I think that's right. I think that's right. All right. So, let's dive into the Jessica Chastain discussion because again, always exciting. It's such a fascinating career where it really was uh, past guests of the show, Bobby finger uh, once sort of made a joke to me about Jessica Chastain, where he's like, he's like, if I ever met her, I think I wouldn't be able to resist just asking her, like, where did you come from? Because, and this was around the time of like 2011, 2012, because it really was just like, she wasn't in anything. And then in 2011, she's in six movies. Like, legitimately, Mm -hmm. uh, the big ones that people talked about were The Help, which she gets the Oscar for, or Oscar nomination for, The Tree of Life, and Take Shelter. Take Shelter being the um, uh, Jeff Nichols movie with, uh, she's Michael Shannon's wife in that movie. So those are the big ones. But she's also in Coriolanus, the Ray Fiennes uh, version of Coriolanus. She's in, um, well, I guess The Debt was 2010, the John Madden movie about... um, uh, Israeli spies, Mossad agents, something like that. She plays the younger version of Helen Mirren's character in that. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's also in the quasi-documentary Al Pacino thing, Wild Salome. And she's in a movie that I've not seen called Texas Killing Fields, which she's in with Sam Worthington, who was also in the debt with her. So Mm -hmm. it's this like insanely concentrated series of movies. And then in 2012... She's in Lawless, which is uh, the John Hillcoat movie that forever was supposed to be called The Wettest County. That was the name of the book. Um, <laughs> the Wettest County in the World. Uh, but forever on movie list, it was just like coming soon, The, the Wettest County. And I'm like, that is, uh, you talk about dumb movie titles. Like, can you, uh, just imagining, you know, two for The Wettest County, please. All right. And then obviously the end of 2012, Zero Dark Thirty acclaimed performance she gets her second oscar nomination in as many years and if that wasn't the jennifer lawrence coronation year with silver linings playbook jessica chastain probably wins the oscar she wins the golden globe in drama so like those two years sometimes i'm still surprised she did not win i'm not because the jennifer lawrence narrative was so strong and it was very much right and jennifer lawrence i think maybe if jennifer lawrence didn't have hunger games or hunger games making 
as much money as it did, maybe Jessica Chastain would have beat her, but like... Hollywood loves creating a movie star in front of your faces, and I think that, I think Lawrence right. and and that performance was a much more ready-made kind of like a star is born kind of a thing. But anyway, Chastain, so all of a sudden it's just like she's here and she's in everything, and... It's interesting to me, and I want to hear your sort of take on this, because from that place, from that sort of like this, you know, fully formed great actress is here and she's in two Oscar nominated performances right in a row and the momentum could not have been stronger. And then from that point, from 2012 through the 10 years from then until her Oscar, right? Mm -hmm. She's that reputation has changed. That reputation has sort of like shifted and molded. And it's sort of this, like a lava lamp of a thing where it's never quite the same shape or consistency the whole way through. She's in big blockbusters like interstellar and the Martian where she's not the lead, but she's like, you know, um, sort of a featured supporting performance. She's in, you know, very kind of rigorously, studious uh, indie movies like Miss Julie and The Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby. She's in weirdo Guillermo del Toro stuff like Crimson Peak where she's like going like off the chain. She's in Miss Sloan and Molly's Game. Yanking her brother. <laughs> but so the thing, and she's in like, you know, movies that don't exist like Woman Walks Ahead or Zookeeper's Wife, frankly. And um, it feels like throughout that decade we're still waiting to define what kind of actress she is and also what kind of celebrity she is where this is during the time where she's a kook on instagram and you know she's being kind of extra in sort of this like you know quasi Anne hathaway kind of a way and one of the things that i find so interesting about her winning the oscar for this year and one of the things that for so long kept me from thinking that she would ultimately win. I kept looking for anybody else to have momentum to win. And it's not because I didn't like the performance. Mm -hmm. It was because I was like, it would be so strange for Jessica Chastain to win the Oscar when we're in this kind of state of flux over like, what kind of actress is Jessica Chastain? What kind of celebrity is she? Is, am I making any sense at all? No, I think you are. I mean, what kind of celebrity she is is always tricky because, and like, what kind of actress she is in like interviews and such is because she is obviously a very serious and like intelligent person. Yeah. But then you have the like Instagram online persona of her that, you know, also says very, you know, uh, uh, forwardly that she doesn't take herself too seriously. Yes. So it's like it's it's two different worlds sometimes, but like I I kind of appreciate the cringy online Jessica Chastain part of it myself. I do too. <laughs> I'm like none of this is for me saying that I don't like what she's putting out there. What I'm saying is it doesn't seem to be, and maybe a lot of it is that like she's not being as managed as other actresses, and that's refreshing in a way. But like there's oh, just absolutely. there's a lot of angles to it, and there's not really this like streamlined vision of like like when this is like when nicole kidman won the oscar for the hours that was a, a an oscar that came at the end of this period of her reforming her 
persona, her acting persona, her sort Mm -hmm. of like where she existed in the Hollywood system. And that Oscar seemed like the perfect capstone to that. And I think you see that we talked about Jennifer Lawrence, like like that narrative was very clean, which was this like, you know, a star is born kind of a moment. And Eyes of Tammy Faye didn't feel like the culmination of anything. It felt like the next step on a sort of ever shifting evolution. And one of the things that I think is so fascinating, I think one, I, for the life of me, don't remember who said it, but it probably wasn't even just one person just posed the question of just like, is Jessica Chastain a great actor? Like, is she, because like, she gives a lot of different types of performances and they're not all great. Sometimes she's too, she's, she can be over earnest. She can be, like not quite have a grip on um I mean she probably I mean like the fr- if you took the franchises out if you took the X-Men out if you took um Huntsman yes god out I I mean I feel like we would maybe have a better I feel like those do a lot and like the it movie too like those movies kind of do a lot to you know, kind Drag of tarnish her like image as an actress. And I also think like her as an action star, because we're also coming off the 355, which I really wanted to see and I never did. And also that Ava. Tate Taylor movie Ava. Yeah. that she did. Yeah. Like, I think those have done a lot, but like, if you just remove those from the equation, I think people would look at her differently. Um, That's true, like, as, but those are big things to remove from the equation because they're, in many ways, her most visible things. Sure, sure, sure. But like, I also think the the flip side of that is that she's do it. She has a lot of really cool, wide ranging performances that a lot of people don't talk about. Like, I love her in Crimson Peak. We did a whole episode on her in a most violent year, which yeah. like she was probably sixth place. But like people have did forget about that movie pretty quickly. Um, Crimson Peak though is a pretty divisive performance. Not everybody loved it, and it's a divisive movie. Yes, yes, it's one I think we should do soon because um, I would love to revisit it. It's been you know seven years now since I've seen it, and love that movie. I didn't, but I. Didn't, I don't think I ever really settled on what I fully thought about that movie, and that's why I'm dying to sort of revisit it. it I feel like I owe it to it. Um, but anyway, I just... She's an actress who is endlessly intriguing to me. And mm-hmm. and the sort of... Even, you know, this, the extraness and the cringiness sometimes and the over-earnestness, it all works for me. And I'm excited to see what she does next. And the only thing I was like with the eyes of Tammy Faye, again, was just like it did not feel like the epitome of anything or the culmination of anything. It felt like another spot on the journey. And I don't think like she's an undeserving Oscar winner. That's not the point that I'm trying to make. It's just that I do think it's an odd win. Well, I do think she probably will have better performances in the future than what her Oscar win is. And like the downside of that is like, she might get nominated again, but because she has it, it's going to be harder for yes. her to yes. win for a better performance. I do think it was very leading up to it. It was, and I think I'm, 
I don't want to speak for you, but it does sound similar to like what you were thinking in that leading up to it, it felt like it's going to be so strange if Jessica Chastain wins for this movie. Yeah. Because it had no momentum until she actually started winning things. Right. And ultimately on the other side, I think it kind of makes perfect sense if you actually look at that best actress race and not at the performance or the reception for the movie. Like I think her performance is good slash, you know, okay. I think she has way more ideas than the movie does about the character she's playing. I think that's right. Um, yeah. And the movie is not at all on her level. Um, I can be swayed in a lot of directions with that performance. I can be swayed into thinking it's a great performance. I can be swayed into yeah. feeling like it's maybe a little surfacy at times. Um, my true feelings are probably somewhere in the middle. I don't think we would feel that way if the movie was better. I think that's probably right. I think ultimately, again, it's... I can go a lot of ways with it. I don't feel any sense of injustice that she won, even if she beat out performances that I thought were great, like Penelope Cruz or something like that. But um, yeah, it's just an odd one to get a handle on. And maybe her speech is actually really lovely. I loved her speech. I thought it was a great speech. Again, classic Jessica Chastain, sort of like very earnest and very, um, she had, a lot of things I think she wanted to say in that speech, and they kind of meandered a little bit, but there was the the effort to make, to say all those things at once was endearing to me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I My other thing is, like, being on the other side of it, I actually think it makes perfect sense that she won, because, like, she's up against a lot of people who already had won. Yes. And it felt like people were holding that against Nicole Kidman the most. Yes. Like, her only other competition was, for someone who hadn't won, was Kristen Stewart. And there was a lot of up and downs with, you know, yes. that performance's place yes. um, in the season. And I think kind of the up and down of the whole race the whole time really played into Jessica Chastain's favor, ultimately. And also, she worked her ass off for it. She yeah. never really stopped promoting that movie right. for, like, six months. She put that movie on she her back. She campaigned harder than anyone else, yep. but, like, yep. even if people thought, like, her online persona was irritating, I think people who were actually voting for her yes. probably never thought that she was too thirsty or irritating. I imagine she's great in a room. Like, it does not is not hard for me to imagine that she is a fantastic uh, Oscar campaigner who you know just from her presence alone that doesn't surprise me right. whatsoever I also though feel like and again we're limited by our own sort of like social circles and I get it but uh, that sort of post Oscars period where everybody kept passing around the Olivia Coleman clip uh, the Lost Daughter clip that they used during the ceremony right? which was by far if you were just watching the clips if you did not see any of the movies and you were just watching the clips Coleman wins in a landslide right because it's, oh, right. it's so it's such an impressive performance in that like very limited span of time that you have for a clip um, I still I mean I I was betting on Coleman all season. I still I think if you asked me today who's going to win Best Actress if they voted today, I'm like, well, Olivia Coleman, obviously. <laughs> like, I would not budge from that. I think the that. thing about uh, Olivia Coleman doesn't campaign for much, period, but I think she probably did just about nothing. 
um, for this. And it's like, she was filming during voting for the favorite, but she was also filming during the voting for this. And like, I can't really explain to you why it didn't hurt her then, but I do (laughs) think it hurt her chances now. Well, so like, let me talk about both sides of my mouth for that. However, like, I do think the whole season would have absolutely changed if she didn't have her Oscar, because I think she would have been the landslide person from the beginning of the season if she wasn't already an Oscar winner. 100%. I think that's 100% true. Um, All right. I want to talk about what Jessica Chastain has upcoming, though, because... Because it's a lot. It's a lot. And it's a lot that we don't really know a ton about. So let me pull up her IMDb. Very quickly. She has the Tammy Wynette show where she is not only um, reuniting with Michael Shannon, uh, who she starred in with Take Shelter, and they're both very good in that movie. Yes. But also, I guess the series is being directed by John Hillcoat, which is the thing that makes me... Lawless. Her lawless director. excited for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are what are Hillcoat's... What's Hillcoat's best movie? Ugh. I hate his movies. Um, That's the thing. I mean, you're so excited that he's, you know, a part of this project, and yet you look at his films and it's like... I'm not excited he's a part of the project. It's the thing that makes me worry oh, about sorry, it. Oh, sorry. It's the thing that makes you worry about it. I thought, all right, I, I, I misheard you. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. No, because otherwise I would absolutely be on board, but like... I see. Uh, I see. I do also think that that just like speaks to... That's just one example of the time that, you know of the times that, like, Jessica Chastain, like, is reunited with people that she works with. Right. And, like, it, on the surface, at least, on from the outside, it seems like she's the one who's, like, getting people she's worked with involved. Yes. So it's, like, it it is cool to see her, like... Wrangling projects. Right. Yeah. And, like, uh, that she is somebody that people want to work with again. You know, like, Boy, Hillcoat really does have a vibe, though. His movies are The Proposition, <gasps> uh, The Road, Lawless, Triple Nine. Like, uh, grim, masculine films, I guess, is is how you could Often working with great actors who deserve better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, George and Tammy is Paramount Plus, and it is... Are they going to sneak it out before the Emmys, or are they going to... Uh, they just is, finished filming, oh, so, so I Oh, so it'll be it. next year. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. All right. Like, she, she'd she been filming during the right, Oscar campaign. Right, right. Um, the other ones, she's completed filming a Tobias Lindholm movie called The Good Nurse. Now, Tobias Lindholm... For Netflix. Uh, right. Uh, Tobias Lindholm is the uh, Danish filmmaker of Another Round and the hunt so we are uh very interested he wrote another round right with sorry yes um yeah uh yes uh remind me who directed another round it's it's uh that's thomas finnerberg yes but i do think he's just he's one of his collaborators right he also uh that director has also done like um forget the name of it but a mini series for like hbo tobias lindholm you're talking about Yes. The Investigation. Yes. Yeah. He's also directed on Mindhunter. He uh, had an Oscar-nominated foreign language film in 2015 called A War uh, that I actually thought was really good. Um, As I recall, uh, you know, 
recent Oscar history, it's always fun to just be like, remember when you saw 20 Oscar movies in the span of a week? Remember what you thought about every single one of them? And I'm like, yes, I do. Um, but I remember liking a war quite a bit. Yeah. So he wrote, um, uh, uh, another round, as I said. And so there's a lot of, excitement i think over the prospect of him directing a movie with jessica chastain it's called the good nurse who else is in this thing eddie redmayne eddie redmayne Kim dickens noah emmerich it's a cool cast so we hope right we have some hope this could be a halo nomination you never know you never really know it could yeah, be no, a no. thing that's totally forgotten because it's netflix so you really have no indication of their level of priority for it right it could also be a because of their level of priority it could be one of those like mid-tier ones where it's like they push it but yes. they don't push it enough yeah um she's in pre-production according to IMDb, on a sci-fi movie called The Division that uh, is a sort of future pandemic movie. Very fun and interesting. Uh, her and Jake Gyllenhaal. It, that movie is written by Rafe Judkins, who, in addition to, he is just coming off of um, The Wheel of Time, that big uh, fantasy series on Amazon, but he also... Uh, was on Survivor for a season and nearly won, actually. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, probably should have won that season. Um, uh, and he was on the season that my friend was on. And um, so I've always sort of, like, had one eye on him. He's worked in, like, a bunch of, like, sci-fi stuff, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and and um, all this other sort of stuff. And uh, But Wheel of Time feels like a very big, like, leveling up for that because that was a show that I had zero expectations for. And then all of a sudden, I kept seeing so many people being like, I'm so into Wheel of Time. Are you watching Wheel of Time? So, um, <laughs> you know, good on that show. Good on him. So that's a little interesting. And then she's also attached to something called Mother's Instinct, which is a film with her and Anne Hathaway. I'm into them reteaming and actually getting some screen time together. I would love that. Wait. This is the other thing about Jessica Chastain. Oh, Interstellar. I was like, wait a second, like reteaming from what? Yes, okay. Exactly. Like, people forget that they've been in a movie together because it's Interstellar. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, they play uh, uh, friends who are like uh, wives and mothers, and then something happens to shatter their uh, their perfect lives or whatever. Love a movie where something happens that shatters somebody's perfect life. Like uh, I'm, I'm, I hope it is in the vein of Obsessed or <laughs> Unforgettable. I'm into it either way. So yeah, so excited yes. to see where Jessica Chastain goes now that she is in her post-Oscar phase of her career. Always an interesting phase of somebody's career. Where they go, what they do with that Oscar. It'll be interesting to see what kind of projects... Because it's like, she was already pretty A-listy before she won the Oscar. It's not Mm -hmm. like uh, the Oscar has made her any more famous than she was. And yet, there's always a sense of like, what projects are they going to sort of use this oscar leverage what's the cash in right yeah yes essentially yes the first thing that she'll have though is this movie the forgiven which premiered at tiff last year right the john michael mcdonough that um she's reteaming with ray fines and like from the two because it wasn't available 
virtually for press. The like two people I saw said that she is kind of wild in this movie. So even though it is a Caleb Landry Jones picture, <laughs> I will be excited to see it. Uh, yeah, I remember that being one of the movies because we did virtual TIFF, so we were geo-blocked on some of the big ones. And for a lot of them, we were geo-blocked on things like Belfast. And it's like, well, that's a bummer, but like we'll be able to see that soon enough because that's you know coming out and it'll be screening in the States and whatnot. And The Forgiven was the one where I was like, God damn it, I'm so mad that I can't see this movie that, you know, She's people apparently like pounding cocaine in it. Oh, God, or something. Great. Lord knows. Uh uh, I love when she rips the roof off of something. Sure. She does it in Crimson Peak. Yes, that's true. Yeah, uh, Jessica Chastain, Rafe Fiennes, Caleb Landry-Jones, Christopher Abbott is in that movie. You know, I love him. Abby Lee has Abby Lee, somehow survived from uh, turning into a spider crab lady on the beach that makes you old. <laughs> um, so good for her. We want to support her. Survived her the final scene of on- uh, not only God Forgives, but the Neon Demon, <laughs> in which she is very funny. <laughs> Uh, what an interesting career Abby Lee has had. Um, but anyway, yeah, so The Forgiven, right? Very excited to see that. That releases in June, apparently, on Netflix. So, yeah. Uh, no, it's Roadside. Oh, well, then IMDb needs to get their shit together, because they say watch on Netflix. Unless Netflix just bought it. Might be an international thing. Fuck you, IMDb, making me look stupid on here. I hate you. All right. Um, (laughs) what else do we want to talk about? R.E. The Zookeeper's Wife. The Zookeeper's Wife. I just have to talk. <laughs> the Zookeeper's Wife. Um, I do have to talk about this line because it did make me inappropriately laugh. Oh, no. And I said it at the top of the episode. When Daniel Brühl fully, like, this is the moment where he goes into, like, cliche Daniel Brühl, like, mustache-twirling Nazi. Right. When he sneers at her, and your little zoo, I find that so funny <laughs> it is i now i'm gonna make you and your little zoo your little zoo and your little zoo too yeah um the, <laughs> the zoo in this movie has a lot of farm animals on it and i know that like i'm sure that exists i guess i'm used to this sort of american conception of zoos where like there are zoo animals and there are farm animals and they don't really well they bring the livestock on there eventually because they're like we could the way to like her means of survival but also getting you know people in and out of the jewish ghetto was like we'll make it a livestock farm you can feed the nazis this way but even the beginning when like the bombing first happens and the animals are all sort of like fleeing from the zoo you see like sheep and stuff like that so like Again, sheep's a farm animal. It's not a zoo animal. And again, I'm sure that's Maybe that was the food for the tigers. Oh, no. Oh, God. I did think it was fascinating that after the that initial sort of bombing scene when the zoo animals are all sort of roaming free in the city, that, like, ain't this some shit kind of a thing of just, like, I'm living in Warsaw. (laughs) The Nazis have just invaded. It's awful i'm scared for my life i need to figure out what to do and i look out the window and there's a goddamn lion and a tiger sort of like just rolling down the street and it's just like it's all it couldn't have been worse it couldn't you couldn't have you know cut me one break now all of a sudden i've got to flee with a tiger just rolling down the street i guess great um (laughs) not a bad movie 
yeah, I don't know if I'm going to think about it very often. But not a bad movie. That's about as far as I'm willing to go, I think, with this. I also should mention, this was a Focus Features movie. Obviously, you know, pause for fanfare. Um, Pause for the... Exactly. 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 What did I see again recently? There was another focus. Oh, it was um, the the outfit that uh, another focus oh. features movie that didn't do the sound. Was it like dialogue? Was it a music cue? I'm pretty sure it was just. It might have been like ambient sound, but like it mm. it was not the fanfare, and it was bumming me out. Like I don't like that this is becoming a trend now, where I'm seeing it more and more. Because I have expectations when I see that title card. I need the soothing sounds of the focus features. It should be illegal. It should be. Thank you. All right. That's all I'm saying. It should be illegal. Uh, (laughs) 2017 was a great year for focus features. After kind of a lean period, if I'm not mistaken, um, they really were sort of flush with... Uh, with films not even just stuff that like they had some stuff where they were like doing international uh releases of they had like the international distribution on ladybird but like mm-hmm. their stuff that they were the the primary domestic distributors like okay yes the book of henry fine we'll uh we'll we'll take that bullet um they distributed the beguiled they distributed uh atomic blonde and then so their award season stuff was kind of rocking for them darkest hour best picture nominee phantom thread best picture nominee they got so much closer for victoria and abdul than they had any right to that year and including for judy dench that's yeah especially for judy dench like that she she was probably at worst seventh place on best actor on the best actress ballot I, i she came close and after again a while there where they were sort of even when they would get oscar success it would be like nocturnal animals pulling like a couple scraps of nominations or um we've talked about suffragette or Mm -hmm. um uh, what other ones from this era so like it had been a while for them since they had an Oscar uh, success and to have that much of it to have two best picture nominees in 2017 was a great comeback. I thought for them and it, oh, absolutely. And it was a big, uh, probably a big part of the reason why they were like zookeeper's wife. We will slot you in March. <laughs> like we right. have other priorities for the calendar and you will be getting released in the dead zone of late March. Focus features, however, our previous May miniseries, still not a Best Picture winner. I know. No Best Picture win. What do they have coming up that's, like, interesting? They have... Well, The Northman uh, is... Yes, U.S. distribution on The Northman. Um, the new Downton Abbey... Uh... Something called Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, which... Uh, excuse me. <laughs> the movie, the motion picture event of the summer! Does that have a release date yet? Yes, July. July uh, yeah, the week after my birthday. <laughs> What's that? Okay, so this is my July. 
Yes. I get basically the three movies I'm most excited for this summer. Nope. On my birthday, which is a Friday, thank you, I get the new Claire Denis movie. Ooh. The next week. Right. There is a new this Claire Denis Perry movie right goes now. To Perry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the week after, nope. July is lit. That's all I'm saying. So, wait. So, nope is what date? July 22nd. Okay, so Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris and the Claire Denis are both on your birthday? No, Mrs. Harry go to, Goes to Paris is the 15th. Mrs. Harry Goes to Paris. I'm, I'm quitting this podcast. I can't. <laughs> I can't handle that. Uh, yeah, we should say why, though. Why is this your most anticipated movie? Isabella Paris in it. Yeah. Co-starring with Leslie Manville, by the way. Who's the lead? Who is the titular Mrs. Mrs. Harris? Harry. Mrs. Harry. But it doesn't matter. It's it's fine. Yes, it does matter. I'm sorry. I love Isabelle Huppert too. But Leslie Manville matters. She ups no, the factor. No, of course, of course she does. She of course ups she the does. Factor. And part of the reason why I'm excited is what an exciting uh, screen pair. Uh, continuing on, Focus Features has the uh, Sundance acquisition. Uh, Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, which I believe is maybe Good getting movie. released on Peacock. Mm-hmm. And they have the new, I believe, Todd Field movie. Tar. They do. Is that how we're pronouncing it? Tar? T-A-R? I, I believe All so. caps with an accent over the A? Not about Bela Tar, no. but about a conductor played, whose last name is Tar, played by Kate Blanchett. Kate Blanchett, uh, something I would probably keep my eye on as far as a Best Actress nomination is concerned. You know, I really thought that, like, I would be one of three weirdos that's like Todd Field is back, but uh, I'm already hearing, like, the drum beats for this that people are like, no. Go back and watch Todd Field's two movies. They were appreciated in their time, but not as much as they should have been. And I'm like, is this going to be another one of those things where it's like, I've been saying this all along, and now it just becomes the cool thing? I don't know. Either way, I, I'm glad. Do you want to be the only person who loves Todd Field, or do you want Todd Field to be appreciated in his time? This is the, this is the decision you must make right now. I want to be the person who is recognized for always appreciating Todd Field. <laughs> okay. That's what I want. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> not about Todd Field. It's about you. It's about me. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Focus also has, by the way, a movie that I, we were just talking about this with Katie Rich on uh, on our text thread the other day. I am more and more intrigued by what this James Gray movie, Armageddon Time, could do. Because it's, right. it's going to premiere at Cannes. And it's scheduled for... I believe it like a nebulous sort of like fall release. It is a, it's James Gray essentially doing the coming of age autobiographical thing. A kid grows up in Queens. Um, so it's the, there's, you know, the, the main stars are the children. And then in supporting roles, it's Anne Hathaway, Anthony Hopkins, and Jeremy Strong. I'm really intrigued, and I feel like James Gray is not I a person. I saw a rumor that actually Jessica Chastain might have a cameo in this too. A third Jessica Chastain and Hathaway movie? Are we? Well, there. I mean, Blanchett was supposed to be in the movie, and it was not a huge role, and she dropped out last minute. Interesting. I'm just really intrigued because James Gray is a director who sort of famously has not been able to get arrested by the Oscars, despite having kind of increasingly. Oscar-y. Uh, it's not like he directs in 
in genres that are antithetical to the Oscars, right? He's done, you know, uh, period pieces, and he's done sort of like grand uh, epics like Lost City of Zed, and he's done, you know, um, intelligent space movies like Ed Astra, which did get like a nomination, but... um, Mm -hmm. A sound mixing. I'm interested to see if finally they sort of let him into the club. Actors certainly love him. Actors can't wait to work with him, right? Well, uh, James Gray is also... The thing that James Gray can't get arrested with Oscars because James Gray, for whatever reason, doesn't really get arrested with American audiences. His regard is way bigger in Europe than it is here. Yeah. Um, And, like, that's, that's something that can always change with one movie. And, like, maybe this is the movie. And he makes movies that are deliberate and thoughtful and not as flashy as other, you know, directors might have made that same subject matter. And there is something sort of... It's, it's, I think, what contributes a lot to the kind of cult nature of his appreciation among like critics or whatever it's not necessarily a cult thing but it's there is a sense of ownership over the people who love james gray movies sort of like what you were saying about todd field where it's like i get james gray's thing i get what he's going for Mm -hmm. and wider american audiences thus far have not the oscars thus far have not and yeah i've got i've definitely got a pin on that one in terms of i want to see what armageddon time armageddon time can do not I would I right now my thing is Anne Hathaway playing the mom in a sort of uh, coming of age autobiographical thing feels like and I'm assuming she's playing the mom I don't think I know that for sure but that feels like I feel like that's been confirmed okay. I don't know that just feels like I don't know and you know Katrina Balfe just got snubbed this year for uh, Belfast and so maybe I'm uh, a nomination I will always misremember. Yeah, you'll always be like, yeah, Katrina Boff definitely got nominated. It's so weird. Yes. It's so weird that she wasn't nominated. I know. Anyway, um, all right. Anything else to say about The Zookeeper's Wife before we jump into IMDb game? No, I would just say the last thing before we do that is next week starts our main miniseries. Woo! Have we announced it by then? Will they know what we're doing? We've announced it online, but I don't think we've said the subject on uh, Mike. Right, but but we're not going to be spoiling anybody if uh, we'll have announced it on Twitter by the time people hear this, right? I mean, if if you're the type of person who doesn't want to know what things are until it drops into your feed, just skip ahead a minute or two. Yeah, but also, what an odd way to experience the world. Okay, anyway, yes, our main miniseries. <laughs> I'm so excited for this one. When we we were sort of we were trying to figure this one out for a while. What should we do? We've done a series on a on a specific year, 2003. We have done a series on a specific actress, Naomi Watts. We have done a series on a specific studio, our beloved Focus Features. What what remained? What other fields were there for us to conquer, Chris? with our next one and it kind of arrived at us at a somewhat uh a little bit of a serendipitous uh way and that we had to cancel an episode <laughs> or or push an episode back because we were going to should i just tell the whole story like this makes sense right no do it do it do we it. were going to do ransom and when we were prepping for ransom 
you, I think, like sent me the image of Ransom being the cover movie of the Entertainment Weekly Fall Movie Preview in 1996. And I was like, oh, well, I need to get that. We need to talk about this. It had been so long since we had talked about EW Fall Movie Preview. Um, and so I went on e- eBay and ordered it. And through annoying little complications in terms of like where I, w- I was visiting my parents and, and whatever... I wasn't going to be able to get my hands physically on this copy of the Entertainment Weekly issue until after we were meant to record. So we had to push Ransom down, kick Ransom down the can, uh, kick the can down the street, rather. And <laughs> while we were doing that, we were trying to figure out what our main miniseries was supposed to be. And you, in a brilliant, uh, brilliant decision, sort of realized that, like, we could just do EW seasonal preview cover movies we tried we initially were like all fall movie preview cover movies we don't they're not enough <laughs> we've done a lot of them we've done some and most of them either we've done them or they got nominated for oscar in some way so we couldn't do gangs of new york we couldn't right. do jackie brown we couldn't do you know uh, any of these but there were we if we opened it up to all seasons we are a podcast for all seasons and so uh once we, Cue the Grease 2 song. <laughs> once we opened that up, there were some really, really fantastic possibilities. And the timing of it was right around the time that EW announced that they were shuttering uh, their magazine, their their physical magazine. And so there was a lot of nostalgia then for the classic EW of old, the classic fall movie previews, whatever. So the timing seemed, again, serendipitous is, a, is the word I will use. I'm so excited. We usually for this. give you autopsies for the month of May. We're going to be giving you a eulogy. Yes. Yes. A eulogy for the great uh, EW movie. So, we're going to talk about movies that had made the cover of Entertainment Weekly's seasonal movie previews. We'll be, in most cases, we were able to procure the issues. So, we will be able to talk about uh, those uh, issues a little bit while we discuss. We've got some fun guests. We've got some fun movies. We've got a listener's choice. I, food, fun, and fashion. The mall has it all, as does this miniseries. So um, <laughs> I'm very excited. It's also um, because, like, uh, and we'll probably get into it, like, E. EW being more, like, mainstream pop culture, too. We're doing definitely movies that I think... I I doubt that there's a listener who hasn't seen at least one of the movies that we're doing yeah, in May. Yeah. We're doing more like populist movies. You know, you might say that it's fudging a little bit towards like the Oscar buzziness, but we're talking about very Oscar buzzy people. Um, do we want to give the titles? I'm gonna I'm gonna leave that one to you. Yes, I think we should. Oh, okay. So starting with the spring movie preview, we will be doing David Fincher's Panic Room. So excited. So excited. So excited. Uh, Less excited to watch the movie. Way excited to talk about the ethos of it. For the summer movie preview, we'll be doing Ron Howard's The Da Vinci Code. I am Ron Howard's Dan Brown's Jesus's The Da Vinci Code. I think that's going to be a fun one to talk about, at least. Oh, it's going to be fun to talk about. Watching that movie again is going to be miserable. I mean, Um, the fun thing is... You won't even have to rent it or go to a streaming platform. Just literally turn on your television and find where it's airing right now. Because like USA or TNT (laughs) or something is showing the Da Vinci Code as we speak. All nine hours. Yes. 
Fall, sticking with Ron Howard, the aforementioned Ransom. Back-to-back Ronnie Howards, uh, yeah. We will not be uh, relishing talking uh, Mel Gibson for the first time, but that is a cast that includes a lot of people to talk about and spend our time on. Um, And then the uh, for the holiday movie preview, we will be doing none other than The Pelican Brief. One of my favorite movies. Of all time. I love that movie so much. We'll be... I'm so excited to talk to you about so it. So much fun to talk about The Pelican Brief. And again, we'll, we've got some guests. We'll announce those when we announce uh, the particular episodes. Uh, very excited about that. Uh, we Your listener's choice, which if... We'll say we'll do the listener's choice uh, this week after this episode airs. Okay. All right. How about that? All right. We'll do that so that you guys can uh, have already heard what this is um, and what your options will be. Your options are going to be across various different seasons. I forget if we did one from each season for you guys to choose. But those options are going to be, uh, insert whisper voice, Mary Riley. Mary Riley. You will have another Julia Roberts option in Notting Hill. Michelle Pfeiffer in The Russia House. And then, because we love bad accents, Harrison Ford and Brad Pitt in The Devil's Own. Honestly, you can't go wrong with any of those, as far as I'm concerned. You really can't. Good episodes incoming. Yes. Very excited. Love to talk about Classic EW. Love to talk about uh, the the seasonal preview issues. It's going to be great. It's going to be very fantastic. It's going to be wonderful. All right. That's coming soon. Right now, though, Chris, we're going to play the IMDb game. So why don't you tell our listeners how that works? Every week, we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we'll mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints in our little zoo. Exactly. All right. Chris, do you want to guess first or give first? Ah, I'll guess first this week. All right. So we talked about the uh, legendary and perhaps mythical film, The Vintner's Luck, earlier. (laughs) Uh, Starring one Miss Vera Farmiga, who we have never done (gasps) on the IMDb game. So hit me with that. Vera Farmiga has one television show. Which is Bates Motel. Which is Bates Motel. Where she played Norma Uh, Bates. Did that show in like was that show the first time that we learned the first name of Norman Bates's mother? Because whoever made the decision that Norman Bates's mother was just going to be called Norma is genuinely hilarious. I find that I'm pretty sure we know that. We know that in like the movies. I think so. Maybe the book. I mean, it's very wild funny. either way. Whoever made that decision, it's very funny. All right. <laughs> um, uh, Alfred Hitchcock made that decision. Right. And he doesn't need more credit, does he? I mean, yeah. Anyway. With justice for Alfred Hitchcock, uh, I he think He deserves yes. all the credit in the world. Yes. Like, literally. That's like not on. You know who we don't you know talk about enough, on... Chris, is Alfred Hitchcock. I feel like. You know one of his, like, top three achievements? What? Saying that. Norman Bates's mom should be Norma. Yeah. Top three. Yes. Easily. 100%. One of the greatest things he's ever done. All right. Three movies. Okay. Um, her Oscar nomination up in the air. Correct. 
I feel like the other two are going to be this franchise, but uh, I'm going to just start with the first one, The Conjuring. Not The Conjuring. Surprisingly mm. so. Because that movie did very well okay. financially. It, that's... Maybe there's no Conjuring on there then. Um, which would be weird. And, like, I think she and Patrick Wilson, like, fully, like, elevate those movies. Even the third one is so horrible, but so watchable because of them. Yeah, I think it's very Um, watchable. Also, they tried to defend that twink so dedicatedly, and, like, good for them. (laughs) Um, uh, Okay, I'm gonna abandon the Conjuring movies and say The Departed. Correct. The Departed. A real thankless role for Vera Farmiga in The Departed. (laughs) She's great in it, though. Sure, but, like, what the fuck does that movie care about that character, ultimately? It doesn't. Right, it doesn't. Um... Okay, so, of her movies, what is she going to be high-billed on and people, like, watch a lot of? Um... It's not going to be like the front runner because no one saw that movie. Um, much as I'm sure it breaks your heart, it's not going to be the Many Saints of Newark. <laughs> oh, you mean her second Oscar <laughs> nomination? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, no, her her uh, first Oscar. Her first win. Oscar win. Um, yes, that's right. Thank you. Right uh, from the book of Joe Reed, <laughs> Vera Farmiga, best supporting actress, the Many Saints of Newark. That was not a bad call. I'm giving you shit because I know it burns you. It wasn't a bad call. I had no good options. I had no sense of that Before we saw the movie, it wasn't a bad call. Thank you. Um, 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 what's coming to, uh, the judge. It's the judge. It's gotta be the judge. It is not the judge. I mean, mean, that's for the better, but. I love that that was your guess. All right. Second wrong guess. Your missing year is 2009. Okay, so the same year as her Oscar nomination. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, I'm not your fucking mommy, it's Orphan. Yes, I'm surprised it took you that long to get to Orphan, yeah. She's not your fucking mommy. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, 2009, the year of Orphan, of Vera Farmiga's Oscar nomination for Up in the Air, and the year that a heavenly vintage slash the Vintner's Luck is credited for that it supposedly released somewhere. Who knows where? Busy lady. Yes. New Zealand. That's where it released in 2009. Was New Zealand and Australia. It did not make it into the United States on DVD until 2012. That was its premiere on DVD. (laughs) 2012. The Vintner's Luck. Holy moly. All right. When people had already stopped buying DVD. Basically, yes. Uh, All right. What you got for me? All right. So looping back to Daniel Bruhl... And playing Nazis, I went into the Daniel Brohl Nazi filmography. Fast. We're talking about a movie where he sneers at a woman and says, you and your little zoo. And uh, for you, I have chosen a woman that he once sneered at, you and your little movie theater. (laughs) Melanie Laurent. Melanie Laurent. Okay. Melanie Laurent, who is also a director, but I will give you the hint that none of these are her directors. Thank you. She is an actress who 
it feels like it would be tough, but it does feel like there are some movies that rise above others with her. So I'm knocking on wood that this is not going to be as hard as it might seem. Inglorious Bastards. Correct. Now You See Me. Yes, correct. The uh, not, not the beginners, like I'm my mother. Beginners. Mike Mills' gritty reboot, The Beginners, <laughs> correct. <laughs> All right. One more Melanie Laurent. If you get a perfect score on Melanie Laurent, that might be one of your finest achievements. I've maybe now reached the the end, though, of the obvious uh, Melanie's. Um, the obvious Melanie's is also a movie I'm going to direct about a, a girl group of uh, of emo singers. <laughs> Or maybe like they're they're maybe not emo. Maybe they're like Heim, like like. Uh, uh, oh, okay. The obvious yeah, yeah, yeah. Melanie's. Um, yes. Okay. Melanie Laurent. Melanie Laurent. There's uh, there is something somewhat recently. I feel like. Oh, it's gonna bother me. Uh, also, people. People keep like bantying about this movie between the sisters Fannings, the yes. Nightingale, which now like, is not even supposed to filmed. be releasing in 2022. It's supposed to be 2023 now. Even Melanie Laurent is like, yeah, I don't think that's happening, guys. It's been on the horizon for so long. Yeah. All right. Um, I literally just need to think of movies that she's been in. Like I, I even should just burn guesses at this point, and that's what I did with Vera. I was like, I'm gonna get this the second I get the year. Yeah, so yeah, I'm just yeah, gonna yeah, Say yeah, the first yeah. thing that comes to my head. Um, and I feel like it's probably something that she's like in a small role in, sort of like Beginners, like probably like a love interest or something. Um. Or maybe some was she in something this year in 2021? I don't know. Oh, you know what she's in is um or maybe I'm wrong. No, I may be thinking of um I love these tunnels you're going Sarah, I confuse her with Sarah Gadden sometimes. Um That is such an insult to Melanie Laurent, I'm sorry. Sarah Gadden is sometimes good. Or are they both Sarah in this Gatton, movie? What's the? She's good in one of the Cronenbergs. Sarah Gadden, are you thinking of Cosmopolis? No, she's in like multiple Cronenbergs. That if makes I sense. They are. They are. No, are they both in this? All right. If if she's not in this movie, still counted as a wrong guess, just because I need to burn guesses. Enemy. She is an enemy. She is. Okay. It is incorrect. Okay. Okay. They're both in that, right? It's her and Sarah Gadden. Uh, yeah. It isn't the thing that they sort of look alike. Anyway, whatever, whatever, whatever. <laughs> um, whatever gets you there. Whatever gets me there. All right. Um, she's in Operation Finale, right? Operation Finale. I don't see that on her IMDb. Okay. The, the the Oscar Isaac the Oscar Isaac Ben Kingsley right. okay well count that as a wrong answer anyway because I need a year okay we'll count it as a wrong answer you were right it is very recent it's okay 
It's 2021, which is very recent, doesn't happen. I'm going to push you along and say there's something else that, like, we talk about never happens on I on People's Known For, and it happened for her, which is partly why I picked this. Something that never happens on a Known For, but it happened for her. Mm-hmm. A Netflix movie. Yes. And the year is 2021. Okay. Netflix movies, 2021. She is not in The Power of the Dog. Um, <laughs> she's, she plays the power. <laughs> American movie? Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> no, it's a French director who uh, is known for horror movies. Oh, 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 um... Um, oh, what's his name? Um, the, the, the uh, high tension guy? Yes. Problematic fave high tension. Alexandra Aja? Aja, Aja? yeah. Yeah, I guess if it's a French, then it would be Aja. Um, oh, I've not seen this movie and I can't remember the title of it, but she's like, um, hooked up to machines or whatever on the, on the poster, on the one sheet for it. You've got it. She looks like Elizabeth Moss on the one sheet. It's called Oxygen. <laughs> not would not have gotten that in a bajillion years. What a weird one. Is that one. the first Netflix movie we've had in a known for? Is that true? That's If it's crazy. not the first, it's the second. It doesn't happen. All right. Now I'm looking up her IMDb because I need to see what should have been on there. Six Underground, which is another Netflix movie. Um God, speaking of Michael Bay. Um, she is in Operation Finale. I was not crazy. Okay. Oh. All right. Good. Why did I miss that? What year is that? Like 2018. Oh, it's right there. It's 2018. Yeah. Never mind. Yeah. Sorry. She was in By the well, Sea, and I don't remember her in By the Sea whatsoever. I guess I only remember Brad and Angelina. I guess she doesn't have a whole ton of other things that she should obviously, that should obviously be on hers. I still say Oxygen shouldn't be, but... Now I'm not sure what else should be. Whatever. She did a movie I've seen with her and Isabelle Huppert that could have been on there. They should just have the Nightingale on there as this uh, forever <laughs> forever in pre-production. The Nightingale is going to be the next Flora Plum. You watch. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, the sister's fanning. All right. We talked for two hours about the zookeeper's wife and really did not talk about the zookeeper's <laughs> wife very much at all. So We had a lot to do. We had to talk about the current Oscar ceremony. We had to talk about Jessica Chastain. We had to hype the main miniseries. It's a lot. It was a lot. We hope you enjoyed it, dear listeners. And starting next week, we have our main miniseries for you. It's going to be so fun. Panic Room. Get into it. It's so good. That's just going to be me, that whole episode. What's that? Entertainment Weekly. Entertainment Weekly. Also so good. All right. That's our episode, listeners. If you would like more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should, uh, you should also follow our Twitter account. I'm not doing it again. I'm just plowing through. You should follow our Twitter account. <laughs> just do it. At had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? You can find me in my little zoo because I know 
how to do only one thing in the world, and that's drive a joke straight into the ground on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. You can find me on my little Twitter at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. I'm also on Letterboxd as Joe Reed spelled the same way. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility, so once you're done birthing that baby elephant, write something nice about us, won't you? That is all for this week. We hope you'll be back next week for Panic Room and Entertainment Weekly and more buzz. Bye.